This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 227. So for me, it's not about the money. It's more about when we have a billion dollars worth of properties, then we will have created a billion dollars worth of value. And you know, as real estate investors, fix and flippers, especially, I mean, that that's a that that's something that really helps the community. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host to the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. Brandon Turner. What's up, man? Welcome. Welcome to the mainland. Thank you. I'm, uh, you know, I'm back home now. It's raining and cold, but you know, I come nice. back, I come back and all of a sudden I realize my host has changed to a, I don't know, I don't want to call him hobo. Is that a bad word? But, but <laughs> maybe just like, uh, you know, you look a little, maybe, I don't know, alcoholic, drugged out. I don't know. Wow. Are you seeing like a reflection of yourself in the mirror here? Is that what's going on? Are you commenting on my beard? Is that what's up? You've got, is that what you call that? Oh, I thought that was like mascara covered in on your peach fuzz or something. Yeah. I I shaved this morning. Yeah, I'm sure you did. (laughs) Yeah. Most interesting man in the world. Yeah. They're very, very nice. You look very, uh, very Portland, you know? (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Actually, you 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 got, got hurt. Ahead. I heard you got you got a you got an injury on your hand or or something, right? So you can't shave yeah. anymore. Um, I I I had surgery last week. Oh. Uh, hand surgery it was relatively involved, and and um, I I don't quite feel confident to to shave. So I've decided to allow <laughs> myself uh, to to get hobo chic like yourself there, Brandon, and and uh, rock the beard for a couple of days. But uh, hashtag yes. hobo chic. Uh, that's gonna be hashtag hobo, hobo chic, chic for sure, for like sure. It. But uh, yeah, man, no, it's it, it hurts a lot. Uh, they they did a lot of work, but definitely mm, recovering. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Josh. I'm very sorry. You're you're actually a sorry person, but I know you are not <laughs> sorry. So thanks for trying. Well, let's and tell, let's tell you're, them the story of how of how you broke your hand. So you were at a, a biker bar, like the typical biker bar, <laughs> and this guy walks up to you and he's like, "Hey, aren't you Josh Dorkin from the Bigger Pockets podcast?" And then he says, "Like, how's it feel working with Brandon and knowing that he started Bigger Pockets and you just got mad and punched him?" Wow. <laughs> Wow, your imagination just runs wild, buddy. Wild, really, really wild does. and free. Now, I, I, you know, years and years of sports and volleyball and things like that. I, I think I, I think I beat it up that's a little a, bit. But that's a lame story. I like mine better. Yeah, well, you know, whatever. It's it's all good, man. <laughs> keep keep co- keep going with this fantasy that you've got. I will. So, yeah, and you got into a fight with a guy. Yeah. bald, uh, angry. Uh, All right. So anyway, moving on. Anyway. Yes. Hey man. So welcome back. It is, uh, it, it is good to have you back. Not, you know, sitting on your porch out in Hawaii as the rest of us uh, suffer here at home. Yeah. Well, you know, you good know trip. You got, yeah, it was a good trip. It was, it was, it was a good time. So if you guys, uh, you know, want to go out to Hawaii sometime, I encourage it. It's, it's not a bad way to, to, to spend a month. So yeah, definitely. Definitely. Cool, man. Well, listen, we have a great show today and uh, a fantastic definitely show today. a like, higher, a higher level show for sure. Yeah. Um, I am. I am convicted. This was a very convicting show. You're of convicted? Things that, I'm convicted of things that I need to do more you like be Joe. Convicted. I guess oh, it is Joe. You're I, convinced maybe. No, I'm convicted of the things I suck at. And I'm like, is that's that the word. Am I using less. the right word? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, man, you have conviction. I've conviction. Well, I know, but it's not conviction. It's like, I'm convicted by how awesome our guest is and how not awesome 
I am. That's what I'm convicted of. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, today we'll get to that show in a little bit. But before we do, let's get to today's quick tip. All right, so today's quick tip actually is something that we mentioned in the show, but I want to say it here just in case you don't, you know, you leave early and you don't stay till the end of the show because it was a little bit later in it. But the tip actually comes from our friend Jeff Woods, who is the host of the One Thing podcast. Check that out. The tip is, he says this, he says, if when people come up to you and say, hey, how are you doing? And people say that all the time. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks. Yeah, it's all, I'm great. Thanks. Right. We all say that. He's like, you're missing out on a massive opportunity to let people know what you need or what you want or what, what, like what you're up to, you know, like, so when somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, what are you up to? And eh, not much easier. What about you? Right. That's the standard response. Instead, it's going to be, Hey, I'm looking for this type of property. Hey, I'm looking for this kind of deal. I'm looking for this kind of person, you know, whatever. I mean, let people know what you're doing. Otherwise you're missing out on, I mean, a, dozens of opportunities a week potentially to uh, let people know what you need and what you're up to. That's great. I love Quick it. Tip. Well done. Well done. Thank you. I it guess wasn't mine, this- but I'll take it. Yeah, that's great. Um, this is show <laughs> 227 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 227. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a deal machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, guys. So today's guest is Joe Fairless. Joe started in the residential single family uh, investing space 
And and his story about all that is, is really cool. And ultimately, he progressed uh, to start doing these much, much larger multifamily deals to the point where he's done well over $100 million in, in multifamily real estate. And it's it's just it's fascinating. Uh, sounds like he's been rocking and rolling. He's got some fantastic advice, fantastic tips, lots of great things to get inspired from. So definitely pay attention on this one. And, and hopefully we get you, your mind going. And let's bring him in. So Joe, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you here. Hey, nice to nice to be here, Brandon and Josh. This is this is going to be entertaining. I can already tell. This should be a lot yeah. of fun. Josh is kind of boring, but I'll be a lot of fun anyway. We'll have a good time today. <laughs> yeah, Brandon Brandon tweeted last night, by the way, in response to somebody, and they're like, you know, Brandon, you should write another book or something. And Brandon writes, <laughs> yeah, the title's going to be. Brandon Turner, the legend. No, it was legendary. <laughs> the life of Brandon Turner. Well, it's what, whatever. Like, New York really? Times best-selling book right there. <laughs> Joe, can his head get any bigger? First question. I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's filling up the computer screen as, as it is already. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I roll. That's how I roll. No, that was a tweet in response. To, so Scott Trench released his book a couple weeks ago, uh, Set for Life. And somebody said, oh, you know, you got you to gotta beat Scott Trench now. I'm like, well, how do I beat Scott Trench? I mean, that book is doing amazing. I mean, he's we sold it. out. He's oh, killing it. Oh, killing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. Yeah, we actually sold out of our entire first printing, like whatever, like five, was it 5,000 books? Like within like a day or two, it was crazy. And then Amazon went out of print and Anyway, drama in a good way. So uh, let's get to your story. We're not talking about Scott Trench today or the legend, Brandon Turner. We're, <laughs> <laughs> legend in his own I feel mind. like you're doing something subliminal with the listeners where you're trying to like make your be. name always associated to the legend. Well, the now. legend, yeah. Eventually, eventually people will hear that word and they'll be like, wait, isn't Brandon the legend? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> No, and there is a story behind legendary. Scott Trench actually is the legend, and we talk about him a lot in that connotation. So I'm trying to steal it from him. Anyway, back to your story, or let's start with your story. Joe, you do a lot of real estate investing. I know you've got some big stuff, and most of our listeners might not know who you are. So can you start at the beginning? Who are you, and how did you get into this real estate investing business? Sure. So I am originally from Texas, went to school at Texas Tech University in 2005, graduated, moved from Lubbock, Texas to New York City. So, you know, cows and cotton to the concrete jungle. And I wanted to compete with the best of the best in advertising. So that's why I moved. My major was advertising. That's why I moved to New York City, worked on Madison Avenue, was making $30,000 as a college graduate. And you know, my rent at the time was $775, I believe. Uh, so my check every two weeks was about $750. So half of it went to rent and the other half, you know, went to student loans and, and living and that sort of thing. Um, so you were broke. I was broke. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I definitely was broke. And I actually moved to East Flatbush, Brooklyn which at the time it was the busiest police precinct in all the five boroughs in New York City. I did not know that um, at the time. So it was a it, it was eye-opening and I uh climbed the corporate ladder relatively quickly in advertising. I went from a junior project manager making thirty thousand to a vice president of a New York City advertising agency before my thirtieth birthday, and I was making a hundred and fifty thousand not plus plus a bonus. So as I was climbing the corporate ladder, I was beginning to make some money. And I think an important part of my story 
is while I was making money along the way, I kept my living expenses relatively fixed, which is important, especially if you're living in New York City. So I, my, all my friends, friends made fun of me when I was uh, at, you know, once I got to vice president level, they're like, dude, you're, you're still living in your same apartment. And by the way, I had moved to East Village. So I lived in the same apartment for nine years in East Village in Manhattan, which is a nice area. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But they, they made fun of me. They said, you know, you have a roommate from Craigslist and you, which is a whole nother story. We don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah, you, you would end up I've with a guy like there. Brandon if you yeah. tried that, yeah. which is exactly. scary enough. <laughs> I had a lot of Craigslist roommates. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did it. <laughs> Sorry for all of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And so I, you know, my apartment consisted of two bedrooms, a a hallway and a bathroom, no living room. I had a dorm style refrigerator at the time. You know, I, I was like 31 years old. I'm 34 now. And so, you know, my friends were like, why are you living like college kid? And I said, well, number one, I really don't care about upgrading my lifestyle to a larger apartment. And then having more, more paying more in rent. Um, and number two, with that money that I'm saving, I'm buying. At the time, I was buying single family homes in Texas, where I'm from, and uh, they were intrigued by that. But yeah, no one really picked up what I was doing and actually did it along with me. And so that I think that's something that's different from my story is that uh, I was able to save money along the way and and able to handle a ridicule. That I know, uh, you know, that, that that was coming to me and was able to save money and, and buy my first house. Nice. Joe. Well, so first of all, like that's that's New York for you. You know, sadly, like I grew up there and New York is literally a place, uh, New York City in particular, where life is about money. It's, it's literally that's that people live to make more money so that they could show off the money that they have to other people to feel good about themselves and how much money they have. Now, obviously I'm speaking in broad generalizations, but like, that's the environment. I grew up in it. It's crazy. And I totally, I totally get it. How did you decide to start buying those homes in Texas? Why did you decide to start buying those homes in Texas? I get the frugality. I get being smart yeah. with money, but why say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to start buying these houses back home in Texas. I, uh, when I was 26 years old, so about th three, four years after I graduated, I was eventually at that point, I was probably making 60,000 or so dollars and I was able to save some money. And I had, a, I remember I had a thousand dollars in my bank account, savings account rather, that I could invest. And I didn't know anything about investing. And so I, I happened to go into my bank and I think it was Bank of America. Yeah. Bank of America. And they had something called a CD, which I hadn't heard of before. So I had to do research on it. And I ended up putting my only thousand dollars that I had in my savings account into the CD and they held it hostage for 12 very, very, very long months. <laughs> and then at the end of it, I got $16 and then <laughs> I got taxed on the $16. <laughs> That's great, man. That's a really good return. What are you talking about? You have, you have a problem? With, I mean, they didn't hold it hostage. They protected that money oh, yeah. from spending they it did. somewhere else. Yeah, they, they, they helped me be more fiscally responsible. Yeah. So, it's, it's, so, it's called a forced, forced hostagehood. Yeah. 
<laughs> so then I realized, I mean, there had to be another approach. So I, I read the book Investing for Dummies, which was really influential for me. And in that book, they talk about three different ways to invest. One is stocks and bonds. Two is investing in LLCs. And three is investing in real estate. And I just gravitated towards real estate. And then I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. And then there's kind of just a snowball effect from there. And I recognized that real estate was the way I wanted to go. Nice. Awesome. All right. So let's talk about that first deal. You're, you're in New York. You decide I'm going to go and buy a single family house. How, how'd it go? How'd it go down? Well, I bought it. I bought the house for $76,000. It was in 2009. And by the way, I, I just lucked out that I didn't have money until 2009. If I had had money in 2007, then I probably would. This would be a different type of interview. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I bought in 2009 when prices were very low in Dallas in particular. And I ended up saving you know $20,000 all in. I The down payment is 20, 20% down. So $14,000 plus closing costs. I was all in about $20,000. Uh, it is about 15. It's in Duncanville, Texas, for anyone familiar with Dallas-Fort Worth. It's about 15 minutes south of Dallas. The interesting thing about this property and all the homes I've purchased, I don't buy homes anymore, but all the homes I purchased is that I've, I've never actually visited the house before I bought it. Uh, personally, I've never visited the house before I bought it. And that's pretty unique, I believe, for buying your first rental property. And may, maybe or maybe not, I would recommend it. I don't know. But here's how I got around it. I had a real estate agent take pictures and also do video walkthroughs of the property. And I also recognize that I have maybe a couple special talents and then a lot of things that I'm not that good at. And one of the things I'm not that good at is... Uh, construction and identifying, you know, doing doing a property uh, condition assessment. Uh, that's just not a strength of mine. So even if I had visited the property, I don't know how much value I would have added. So my approach for that first single family home was to have my real estate agent go around, take a video, give me a sense of the property. And then I, because I was from Dallas, I am from Dallas, Fort Worth, I know the area incredibly well. So just by seeing the property address. I know if the school district's a good school district. So I was familiar with the market, but the house, I figured I'd get it under contract and then have an inspector go through it, pay a couple hundred dollars, and then get an inspection report and see if there's anything that was a deal breaker or not. Because on the surface, it looked pretty good. And that's how I approached it. Yeah, I think, I think that's cool. You know, I think a lot of people get this feeling that you have to invest in your own backyard. And you know, I, I mean, even here on the podcast, and I've recommended it, you should look in your own area. But if you live in New York City or you live in San Francisco, it might just not be possible to do that. Um, now, I, we usually recommend, you know, maybe drive a couple hours, find a lower price market. But uh, like you said, you, I don't know, you, you knew Dallas. You had an unfair advantage, like we like to say. You had an unfair advantage there in that you knew the market really, really well. And so I, I think that's awesome that you did that. I, I, I know a number of people. In fact, I just hung out with my buddy David Green last week. And uh, he's the guy who invests. Uh, he lives in San Francisco, invests in Florida. And I think in Arizona, uh, he doesn't go look at most of the properties he buys. He he has somebody else do the walkthrough and he invests areas where he knows the market really well, where he has an unfair advantage. So I think that's very mm -hmm. cool. Do you have any tips for people right now like that are listening to this show that want to do that? Like, What would you tell them kind of the first steps to do if they want to start buying a single family house or two out of state? What should they do? Well, I, I think you've got to have the right on the ground people who you trust. And uh, the best way to do that is, I mean, one is through bigger pockets because, you know, you can simply look people up, see how much they've posted, how many votes they have, because 
that that is a good indication of how much value they're providing to the community. Yeah. Uh, and and then you can reach out to them. I mean, that that's a simple, very practical thing to do. Once you reach out to them, identi- first off, know what you're looking for um, and know what is and isn't a good deal to you. If you don't know that, then perhaps not reach. don't reach out to people yet. Know how you're going to run your numbers and how you're going to qualify a deal. That way you're prepared when you do find that individual on the ground to brief them on exactly what you're looking for. And then it's, I mean, it, it's, it's super, I, I don't, I don't want to trivialize how, you know, the different things that go into buying a house. But for me, I mean, it was pretty simple. I, I just found a, a real estate agent. I had the money, um, the down payment saved up. I had the lender lined up and I looked at a bunch of listings. Uh, one thing, and again, I haven't bought a house in about four years, so I, I'm not super sharp on this stuff. Sure. But uh, one thing I remember looking at is I, I initially got a bunch of listings from the agent and he said, well, how do these places look? And I said, I have no clue because I don't know how much they rent for. And I said, in order for me to determine if it's a good purchase or not, in addition to sending me the listings, please send me what you think the places will rent for. That way I can simply run the numbers. And all I was looking for in my single family homes was something that was making at least a hundred bucks a month. I had $10,000 in equity at closing compared to sales comps, and it was less than a thousand dollars move in ready. Now, that criteria certainly isn't the most value add type of opportunity that I could do. And as I've become more experienced and well-versed in in real estate, I recognize that the bigger dollars are in the value add opportunities. But right out of the gate as a single family home and buyer and and a first time investor, I, I, I was just looking for something that was kind of cookie cutter. And when I told the real estate agent that, he said, okay, great. And I said, here are some things I'm not looking for. I'm not looking for anything with the pool. I'm not looking for anything with the large backyard. I had a bunch of things. And the reason why no pool is because maintenance stuff and liability. The reason why no large backyard is because I know for tax purposes, if the property takes up the majority of the lot, then I can depreciate the improvement of that house on taxes much more than just the vacant land. So I wanted a house to eat up the majority of the lot and some other things like that. I mentioned it to them and and that's I just went out and list looked at the things that looked at the properties uh, virtually. And so those would be the steps that I'd recommend. That's hey Joe, awesome. really 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 quick. The 10K a month, 10K equity at closing that's that's you know in the end of the hundred bucks a month, hundred k, hundred months. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. Whoops, sorry. Ten k a month. That'd a month. be great. great Ooh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, so those are your criteria, and and I just want to emphasize for anybody listening who's new, you know, it's really important before you get started to figure out what your criteria are. You really want to know what kind of properties you're going to get in. What are those numbers? And it, it may be very different for you. It, you know, There may not be a monthly cash flow number. There may be only an equity, a closing number. There may be only something else. Nobody can tell you what's right or wrong. You kind of have to figure that out for yourself, but it's important that you actually figure out what are your criteria and stick to those numbers. Uh, that's where most people really get it wrong is they get emotionally attached to to properties and they they fudge their criteria and they always rue the day they always you know regret oh man i should have stuck to my numbers i should have stuck to this so i just wanted to kind of pass it along 
Yeah, and by investing virtually, I wasn't emotionally connected to any one property because I never visited the property, which is one benefit of of doing it virtually. Yeah. Well, yeah. so if that's a benefit of doing it virtually, what's the danger in doing it virtually? You don't have the right team and you buy something that is in a bad area and you don't know the area. Maybe it's maybe you don't look on Google Maps that it's across the street from a cemetery. Yep. Maybe there's the neighbor has a, a big old boat that they always park out front and a, a big above ground pool in their front yard and that doesn't show up and you can't rent it out because the neighbors are are kind of unruly. Um there you might not get a good inspection report uh and you don't know that you didn't because you're like wait a second I saw that there literally was no flooring in the kitchen. It was a big hole but that's not an inspection <laughs> report. You wouldn't know that if you didn't visit the property. I mean Pros and cons. I mean, just just with any approach we take, I the pro. Uh, in addition to what I was a- already mentioned, the pro is also I wasn't flying from New York City to Dallas anytime we looked at a property. Yeah. I, I was, you know, it, it was saving a tremendous amount of time. But as with any business, if you uh, start outsourcing stuff, you're, you're going to give up control and you're going to increase the likelihood that mistakes might happen. And you just kind of got to optimize the process as you go along the way. Yeah. There you go. I love that. So you're no longer, you said you're no longer doing single family houses. Can you first explain why that is? And then, you know, what came next? What was your next non-single family property? Uh, the reason why I'm not doing single family homes is because I went to a rich dad, poor dad seminar as one of the three day seminars. And I, I paid like a couple hundred bucks to go to it. And I went in my chest sticking out and feeling pretty cocky because I had two single family homes at the time. And (laughs) (laughs) I went in and I sat down and like the first thing they said was, you're not going to get rich buying single family homes because it takes too long to scale. Now, I don't believe that now because I have interviewed people who have gotten and rich is subjective, who have become financially independent. Their income has covered their expenses through single family homes. So I, I, I don't necessarily believe or, or agree with that now. However, uh, I did at the time and it resonated with me. I was like, wait, you're right because I've got a house, uh, two of them, and they're making me about 250 bucks a month. And then when a tenant moves out or a resident moves out, I then uh, get a $5,000 bill and that wipes out my profit for basically two years yep. from the rentals. Something is not right because I'm going to have to scale big time. And then I was getting uh, my insurance payments that I was having to do. I was having to renew every single 12, every, every 12 months. And I was having to mail in the check and I detest mailing things. <laughs> and it, it was just, I was, it was just piling up. I was like, there's got to be yeah. a different way. So the two things they said, multifamily or mobile home trailer parks. And I just gravitated towards multifamily. So immediately thereafter, I started studying multifamily and that coincided with me becoming um, apathetic towards my full-time job. You know, I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan and he talks about the six human needs and I won't go into all six of them, but the last two lead to fulfillment that's growth and contribution. So if we don't feel like we're growing and we don't feel like we're contributing in a meaningful way, then we won't be fulfilled. And I just didn't feel like I was growing or contributing in a meaningful way in my advertising job. Uh, therefore, I was I was I was going to leave. I decided to leave, 
in uh, December of 2012. So I realized, well, I won't prove for a mortgage if I leave my um, job uh, for a house. Uh, so the other way to do it, as I've been reading about this apartment stuff, is that I can go in with other people who do have full-time jobs and I can buy something together with them and we can share in the profits and I'll oversee the thing. And so it was a combination of those factors where I decided, okay, now I'm going to make the jump from single family to multifamily. Got it. So how, how many houses... Uh, was it after two houses then that four. you had jumped? Oh, it was four houses. Okay, cool. So, all right, I'm ready. I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna get into multifamily. What now? Like, what? What do you do? How do you get over that hump? You know, uh, it's a fundamental leap in in the mindset. I think for a lot of people to go from houses to multifamilies. So, I'd, I'd love to hear about that um, shift for you, and then love to hear about the the first deal. Yeah. A blissful ignorance is how you go into it. You don't know what hey, you're getting Brandon's into. That's Brandon's motto. <laughs> <laughs> Until you get well. into it. I mean, I, so what I did is I, while I was in my advertising job, I was also teaching a class in person in New York City on how to buy uh, single family homes remotely. And, and the reason why is because what I was mentioning earlier, a bunch of my advertising friends are like, wait, you got a house? I thought you were an advertise. What do you, what do you mean? How do you have a house? And it's in Texas. And so I, ta- I started teaching a class on that. And uh, my oldest brother's friend, after I'd been teaching for about a year, my oldest brother's friend reached out to me. And he's a gym owner. He owns some gyms in a Dallas-Fort Worth area. And he said, you know, I heard you uh, are investing in real estate, I'd like to... Do you have that presentation that you do in the class? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll send it to you. So I sent it to him and he said, you know, this looks great, but I'm looking to go larger. So if you ever do something larger, let me know. And I thought, huh, interesting. And I heard that from a couple people and I thought, wait a second, do I have a, a client? Do I have customers before I have a product? And that's the best business you can be in. When you yeah. have customers before you have a product, then you know you're on to something. Yeah. And, and so I, I knew that I had some people who were interested in partnering with me. And so I started, I, I read a bunch of books, pretty much, I mean, not every book, but I'd say 80% of the books that you can think of on apartments I've read. I started um, shadowing some people who are multifamily investors and I got incredibly active on bigger pockets. You can tell uh, if you saw my posting history within that time frame. I mean, I was I was posting left and right. I was wanting to learn as much as possible, and I used bigger pockets as a tool to help me learn the multifamily business and awesome. make friends and and reach out to people um, and and learn how the heck are they doing it in their market. So once I got the foundation of the knowledge, then you go apply it. And so I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I and I wasn't planning on going to Tulsa. I was like, you know what? I was buying these single family homes, just talking to a real estate agent, and, sh- and he was going, he was finding the property, sending me deals, and I bought them. Easy. I'm gonna do the same thing with multifamily. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work that way because again, I I thought since I had four single family homes, 
shoot, they take me serious. I live in New York City. I got four homes and I'm telling <laughs> them I want to invest in multifamily. They're just going to show me all their off-market deals. Didn't work that way. I didn't get any deals from this uh, the, the broker group uh, and brokers that I reached out to in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I had identified Tulsa through various um, economic indicators. And uh, so I took a trip to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, when I went there, we made offers on about eight or nine deals, not at the same time, but consecutively. One said no, didn't work. Then we went to another, didn't get any of them. But at the time, I was also uh, making a friend in Tulsa. He's a real estate developer in Tulsa and, and other markets. And he connected me to a broker who showed me an, a deal in Cincinnati. And I'd never been to Cincinnati. Uh, maybe I drove through when I was young, but I'd never actually been there as an adult. Uh, so I was like, well, let me, let me qualify the deal first, which usually I qualify the market first. But let me qualify the deal first, and then I'll go visit the market. And um, that's how I came across my first opportunity. So I want to ask, how do you qualify a market? You had talked about you know, various indicators that told you that Tulsa was a good market to be in. What, what were those indicators? What, what, what would somebody look for if they're trying to decide on uh, a market for properties like this? I mean, ultimately, when we're qualifying a market, we want to make sure that people will be able to pay rent to us so we can cover our expenses and make the cash flow. Uh, that's what it boils down to. That's the end result. So how do we get to that point? Yeah. We get to that point to make sure we we make sure that the employment base is strong and it's diverse. And, and then the third factor, and I'll elaborate a little bit on each of these three. The third factor is supply and demand, because even if the employment base is strong and it's diverse, if there's one million apartments and three renters, then you're going to be in trouble. So you yeah. want to you want to look at supply and demand. Those are the main three factors. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, certainly from a submarket standpoint. So drilling in deeper on the area, what's around, what type of school district is it, what type of community development is there, where's the path of progress. There are other things, but from a very practical level. So for anyone listening who wants to look for good multifamily markets, um, you look for uh, unemployment. Uh, you see how it's trending. You compare that to the national average. You look at employment uh, diversity. So you want to make sure that no one employer makes up more than 15, 20% of all jobs and no one industry makes up more than 15, 20% of all the jobs. You can easily look that up on a Bureau of Labor and Statistics. You could easily look that up on this, the uh, city's Wikipedia page and then scroll down to the bottom and you'll be able to click on the, the resource uh, reference links at the bottom and, and then find where they're getting their sources yeah, and then make sure great. that those are valid, that valid sources. And then supply and demand, that's a little trickier if you don't have access to CoStar or a, a database like that. So perhaps talk to your real estate agent or, pro, or property manager who you're working with in that market, and they should have access to um, absorption rates in that market. So how many people are able to rent versus how many apartments are there and plus how many apartments are there that are coming online. So existing plus coming online and looking at that compared to how many people are renting. Those are the three factors that, that I look at. Awesome. Hey, can I ask a question? Like, and again, I like, don't want you to give away your secrets here, but like, I'll give them away. <laughs> well, it's the, it's the big, guys, no secrets in real estate. Well, what, what I mean, 
what I mean is like, are there markets that you would recommend maybe like, or maybe not even not recommend, but things that you're looking at, things that you see strong right now that, uh, that, that you've been looking at and saying, Hey, that's a pretty decent market. By the way, yep. Brandon has no, yep. no personal interest. No personal in interest at all, all in this question. No, I have no <laughs> reason to ask this question. Well, <laughs> I, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm from Dallas, Fort Worth area. Fort Worth, Texas was rated number one. And not a lot of people know this rated number one in population increase from 2000, 2015 by the census bureau. And so the population is growing tremendously in Fort Worth, especially North Fort Worth, North Dallas and North Fort Worth are, are growing. North Dallas probably isn't, isn't um, groundbreaking news to anyone, but Fort Worth and North of Fort Worth is. And in addition to the population increasing, and by the way, it's projected to continue to increase. I mean, the, the Fort Worth area, uh, I feel like is, is getting the same, uh, isn't getting as much attention as Dallas, but it's getting the same type of job growth and winning the same amount of new companies being headquartered there as Dallas is. So I'm, I'm really big on Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Good to awesome. know. I'll start looking. I mean, I mean, our people will start looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> our listeners. All right. What? What? What'd <laughs> All I right, say? So, Did that come out? Yeah. So let's skip ahead a little bit and kind of get a, a big summary of your, what you're, okay. where you're at right now. And then we'll backtrack and get your story more. Yeah. Like how many total deals have you done now? Or how many units do you have? How much do you, you know, like, where are you at right now? Uh, I've got, um, $130 million worth of apartment communities. My business partner and I, with our investors, okay. have $130 million uh, worth of apartment communities. That's based on purchase price. Um, so it, oh. it's worth more than that. But that's just all. It's easy, easy way to think about it. And that is a little under 2,000 units. Uh, additionally, we have two properties under contract. We're going to close by the end of June. And at that time, we'll have about 2,400 units. Um, wow. So you're just getting started, I, I see. You're, you're just getting pre- started, baby. <laughs> I go, yeah, absolutely. What is your goal? I mean, what are you, what are you trying to get to? My goal is a billion dollars of apartment communities by the time I'm 40. I'm 34. My birthday's in a month. So I'm basically 35. So I'm five years. And, okay. it's, it, and it's important to note that I, I drive a 2012 uh, Toyota Corolla. <laughs> so it, for yeah. me, it's not about the money. It is about, I mean, I truly am a minimalist. When my fiance and I buy something, we uh, give away something to Goodwill. So I, I, I hate collect, I hate stuff. I hate collecting stuff. So it, it's, for me, it's not about the, the money. It, it's more about when we're bringing, when we have a billion dollars worth of properties, then we will have created a billion dollars worth of value. And, you know, as real estate investors, fix and flippers, especially, I mean, that, that's, a, that, that's something that really helps the community with the job creation locally and employing a lot of people that probably the fix and flippers don't even know they have a ripple effect on. And that's the same thought process with the billion dollars of apartment communities in about five, five years in a month. Wow. wow. That's awesome. So... All right. So 130 million, you know, 2000 units, you're adding 400 units over two more properties. Let's, let's talk about that first property, that first apartment complex. It sounds like you picked it up in, in Ohio. Yeah. Yep. All right. So give us, give us the numbers and, and how did you, how did you put it all together? Right. So it sounds like you had uh, a couple people who had some cash. I'm assuming 
you were the guy who found the deal. How'd you find it? What it looked like? And then how did it kind of all come together? Yeah. So the, I, I ended up, I mentioned a couple of people who had shown interest in partnering with me and I ended up, um, it, it definitely was a character building experience. <laughs> That's what I like to call it. And when you're raising money for the first time on a deal, I mean, it, it's it's very challenging. And I'll tell you the way I did it. And then I'll tell you the way that I, I do it now. And I recommend others do it because I don't recommend doing it the way I did it originally. The way I did it originally is I found the deal and then I look for the money. And that that's not the approach to take with multi, large multifamily. Single family or wholesaling, I get it. You can find the deal and then the money will come. But when you're raising, in my case, I raised over a million dollars on my first deal. When you're raising that amount of money, uh, you really need to ha- be prepared and have your ducks in a row prior to finding an opportunity. And when I say you need to have the money lined up, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying have money from investors transferred to an escrow account prior to finding a deal. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying verbal interest and in investing with you and then you've got that verbal interest. So you should have 30% more than what you think you need committed. And when I say committed, this shouldn't be money transferring to an escrow account. It should be simply a verbal interest in your deal or in, in what you're doing. And then when you do have a deal, you'll be able to reach out to those individuals. And there's going to be some attrition with the individuals who had shown interest in what you're in, in the deal. So you've got to anticipate that. And that's why you need 30% more than what you think you need. So to answer your question directly now, now that I, I kind of laid that foundation, um, how, how it went out or how, how, how it happened was I reached out to a lot of people who I, who I knew and eventually 12 of them invested. I had a, uh, Two of them, or about two hundred thousand dollars, back out a couple weeks before we were supposed to close, and I didn't have a backup plan. But fortunately, one of my investors went larger in the deal, and he covered the difference. And uh, it was a creative deal; it was actually a master lease deal. Uh, so what that allowed me to do is not uh, have to get approved for a mortgage or by by the lender. Uh, because I didn't have the net worth or liquidity to get approved for the loan. So one of the one, one thing when we talk about master leases is if you, you you'll hear that they're a really good uh, strategy for buying real estate or or taking control rather of real estate, and it's true. But it's important to know what the downsides are as well or the potential pitfalls uh, because not a lot of people who who do master leases actually give you the full picture. So. The full picture is with a master lease, which by the way, uh, a master lease is basically you are leasing it from the current owner and um, you're taking over all of the income. So you receive all the income, but you also have to pay all of the expenses, including the debt service or the mortgage. So the reason why master leases would be good, and then I'll tell you the things to watch out for, the reason why they could be good for you is because you can identify owners who have, especially now with interest rates relatively low, who have recently refinanced to get into uh, a new lower interest rate opportunity or new lower interest rate uh, loan. But then maybe a life circumstance happens with them. Maybe there's a death in the family. Maybe they just want to abruptly retire, whatever it is. 
Well, most likely they have a prepayment penalty on that new loan that they just put on the deal. So because there's a prepayment penalty, they are uh, not going to be able to exit out of the deal without a large sum of money going to the lender. A way to get around that is a master lease where you're taking over the current loan and you're paying the expenses and you receive the income. Now, here's the thing to watch out for. You'll want to read the loan document that the seller has with their lender because it might say something to the effect of you can't do a master lease. Mm -hmm. And if you do a master lease, then you're in uh, default. They might be in default of the loan. They might call the loan due. And that can be a big time problem uh, because if you're, especially if you're raising money and you don't have uh, the money to pay off the loan, should they call the loan, then yeah, you'll be in hot water if, if they call the note due because you're going to have to find you know, the, the money to pay off the balance. And, and so I actually delayed closing two weeks because I needed something in writing from the lender that said they were approving this transaction. And that's something that I'd say 99% of people who do master leases don't get is approval from the lender. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think you're playing with fire if you don't do that, especially on a large multifamily deal. Well, how many, how many lenders are okay with that? I mean, is that a thing that lenders are okay with? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I know this lender was. And the reason why this lender was is if you let's look at it from their perspective, they are still keeping the seller as a personal guarantor on the loan. Yep. So the, the seller is still on the loan. They're still responsible for the loan and they still have their collateral, which is the property plus the personal, in this case, there's a personal guarantee uh, from the seller. Uh, so I, and in addition to that, if the seller is strong enough and they see future business opportunities with the seller, then they're going to do what they need to in order to make sure they're happy so that they do more business with them. Yeah. Right yeah. On. Makes hey, sense. Joe, Joe how, how does it work from the uh, seller's perspective? So I own this property. You come to me and say, Hey, you want to do this master lease? How do I get paid? What do I get paid? You know, you're, you're getting all the cash flow and, and the liability. I'm still on the hook. It sounds like yeah. for everything. So, so that kind of, Sucks maybe. Yeah. But what, what do I get for it? Well, you get the down payment. Well, the, the short answer is you get what you negotiate. So here, here's a couple things that you could get. You could get a down payment. And in this specific scenario, they got a down payment of a little over a million dollars. Uh, so there's incentive because if they didn't do the master lease, they would have had to sell the property. And then there was a million dollar prepayment penalty on the property. So it hurt the numbers. You could also, and they didn't get this in my scenario, but you could get as a uh, lessee or leasee, I don't know what the terminology is, but the seller could get a monthly stipend for like royalty. Yeah, royalty for, for maybe the just whatever you negotiate. There's a couple different ways, but primarily it's the down payment. There's another thing where maybe the seller carries back some money so even though you bought it for a certain amount, you don't pay all of them up front, the money. So you could, you could give them interest on their whatever they carried back, uh, but primarily a down payment. 
So in, in your case, you acquired the property through this master lease with the seller. You gave them the down payment, the million bucks. They're still on the hook for the property. How do they get off the hook for the property? It's got to be at a sale, correct? You betcha. Yeah, sale or you assign your rights to purchase to someone else and then they buy the property from them. And that's that's in our case, that's what we did. We assigned our rights to another entity and then they bought the property and then everyone exits at that point in time. Got it. So if you assigned the deal to somebody else, how did you make money on that? Besides, was it just the cash flow in the meantime? Oh no, you you make the the difference on okay. what you so when you enter into a master lease agreement, you say I'm going to buy this property in uh three, five years, two years, whatever it is, at this particular amount. And then when you assign your interest to exercise that option purchase, say you say you buy it, say you um are going to buy it for uh three hundred thousand dollars. If you assign it for $350,000, then you will have made the cash flow along the way plus that $50,000 spread. Okay. Very cool. And so is that like, can we talk numbers on that first deal? What did you buy it for? What did you end up, you know, like what was the average cash flow? Like, was it a really home run deal or what was that like? Wait, but before that really quickly, um, you said, sorry, Brandon, I, I just all think right. it's really important. You said you put together money from all these people. Like I can't just say, Hey, Brandon, give me 500,000. Joe, give me a uh, 600,000. You know, Frank's mom gives me, you know, another 500,000. I can't just put all that together and put it in a contract and move forward. Can I, or how does all that work? Yeah. So thank you for mentioning that. That's a good point. A, cu- a couple things. One is to directly answer your question, you do it through a securities attorney and you put together a document called a PPM, a private placement memorandum. It also includes an operating agreement. So the PPM basically tells them how they can lose all of their money in the deal. Um, it's a very scary 130 page document. The operating agreement is a typical operating agreement that most real estate investors are familiar with. It shows who's in the deal. Well, PPM shows that too, but who gets paid and what the order of priority is and upon sale, upon cash flow, et cetera, voting rights, et cetera. There's also a subscription agreement. So what the investors, the investors subscribe or invest into the entity that has the property. So that's the third thing. The fourth is an investor qualifier form. And that if you're taking only accredited investors, so people who make 200K a year for the last couple of years with a reasonable expectation to make it this year or 300 jointly with their spouse or a million dollars net worth or some other obscure things, there are other ways to qualify them more obscure, then you they fill that out to prove that they are accredited. So those are the, the four primary things. The fifth thing that we put in there is how they will receive their monthly distributions just so we don't have to collect that information later. So you, ha- you have a, a securities attorney put that together. Those are the five components, the PPM, the operating agreement, the subscription agreement, the investor qualifier, and, and how they're going to receive their um, distributions. Um, now, uh, practically speaking, for someone who has real estate experience and is looking to bring in investors, the way that I was able to bring in investors is I identified the different networks that I was a part of. So Texas Tech Alumni Advisory Board, I had been on that for five, six years. I still am. My advertising agency friends, 
I had uh, someone on my flag football team invest with me. He only knew me because he was on my flag football team. And uh, roommates, not the Craigslist, actually one Craigslist roommate, uh, plus some roommates in college. So what I recommend doing, here's a practical tip for anyone listening, is identify the different networks that you're a part of. And then put them in a spreadsheet, put, put the individual's names in a spreadsheet. And then your goal is to reach out to one person within each of those networks and um, have a conversation and see if it's a good fit with them. If so, then talk to other people in that same network and name check that you spoke to so-and-so. Because the number one influencer of purchase intent, I know this from my advertising days, is word of mouth referrals. That's the number one purchaser, one number one influencer of purchase intent is word of mouth referrals. So if you say, hey, Josh, I know Brandon and I were talking. He he was showing interest in this deal. I thought we thought you might be as well. I mean, Josh, you might say, hell no, not if Brandon's in it. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's probably the case. Yeah. Right. But yeah. other people might might say, yeah might might say yeah I I'm interested as well and then you you go about it that way and I can tell you that spe- that that specific example worked for me on my deal and that brought in the largest investor that I had on my deal because he said oh and this guy's happened happen to name Brandon oh well if Brandon's in the deal then uh, then I know he's fiscally responsible so sure yeah I'll take a look at it. I love Got that. It. I love that. That's, and that's great. You know you would invest with me, Josh. Come on. Yeah, Come on. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, All right. Hey, hey, Joe, really <laughs> quick. One last thing before Brandon throws a bunch of questions at you that are probably meaningless. But uh, <laughs> what is what is all that cost? So you pay the securities attorney. I mean, that's a lot of paperwork to generate. So, you know, just the the attorney's costs on that first deal or, or you know, subsequent deals. I'm sure it's Masumenos in the same price. What, what are we talking about here? Fifty thousand. Wow. wow! Wow! Fifty grand to put together all this paperwork. Yeah, I mean, and you can, uh, well, you do get it paid at closing after you close the deal. Now, there are other resources that you can use that are less expensive. I mean, you can get a PPM drafted for eight, yeah, probably like six, seven thousand dollars. But I'm talking about the negotiations with. Uh, the, that your attorneys are, or the attorneys that are reviewing the contracts in addition to putting together the securities documents and the operating agreement, all in conservatively 50K. I can tell you for that first deal, it was about 10,000, but I cut corners and I don't, don't recommend cutting corners. Um, if I had to do it on a shoestring budget and not cut corners, I could probably get it done through a different attorney that I use for probably all in 15,000, but we just, we, we go with one that we're comfortable with and we know has everything buttoned up. And that just, and that, like you said, it comes out of closing. So essentially if you're raising money for these deals, you're raising a million dollars. I mean, it adds 50 grand to the million you need. And then the investors are kind of paying that anyway, or do you pay that out of your pocket? Are you paying that 50 grand? It comes from investors plus Joe and Frank, my business partners funds. Okay. All right. And so how much money are you usually put into these deals? I mean, are you usually invested in every one or are you doing no money of your own? Uh, yeah, we invest in every one of our deals. Uh, the first deal, I didn't have any money to put in. Um, but then since I partnered with my business partner, Frank, and we have Ashcroft Capital, we put in at minimum $100,000 in every one of our deals. 
Okay. Got that's it. awesome. That's all. And that also helps, you know, when you're sh- telling investors, Hey, I'm putting my money it's, in this. You have to, you yeah. have to, it's a no brainer. Yeah. yeah I mean, awesome. ju- just, yeah, you have to have alignment of interest. Very, very cool. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Uh, so are you still doing these master lease options on deals today? Or are you no, mostly doing just purchases? Uh-uh. Yeah, I, that, that was just to get going. Okay. Um, and I, I don't do that. Now, it's not something I'm opposed to, but it just makes more sense to put new debt on the property. So for with Ashcroft Capital, our first deal was a 250 unit. And uh, ever, you know, for all of our deals, we put new financing on it. Haven't done anything really creatively other than get off market deals. 
Okay. Well, what is Ashcroft? Is that is that you you and your partner's entity, yep. or is that yeah okay. yeah yeah? Very cool. okay, where'd, the, where'd, where'd the name come from? Uh, I don't know. I'm not. I, you know, I have a house on Ashcroft Circle in in Texas, but yeah, I, I don't know where they came from. Yeah, yeah funny, funny. All right. So, how you talked about finding off market deals, or does that mean that all your deals off market, or how how do you find apartment complexes to buy? Well, really, an interesting story, uh, and this is applicable to every single real estate investor who is looking to invest in a hot market, uh, and and find off market deals. So. Here's a story. This happens to be the last two apartment communities I we closed on over 500 units in Dallas, Texas, about a month and a half ago. And there, so here, here, here's what happened. We saw a 300 unit, 300 plus unit property that was being marketed by a broker, and we liked it, but it kept getting bid up and up and up and up as. They were doing their job. They were promoting the property and trying to get the highest and best offer for their client, the seller. And so we we noticed that we weren't going to able be able to buy it unless we had a different variable in play. And so my business partner had the idea to look across the street. And across the street, there was another apartment community. And the one that was being marketed, the 300 plus units, it was 90% one bedrooms. And the one across the street, a, a 250 plus unit apartment community, had primarily two and three bedroom units. And so what he did is he reached out to our, our broker that we use. And that broker happened to have a relationship with that owner across the street. And so we were able to get both of those deals under contract, the on-market deal and the off-market deal. And together, there are, are economies of scale. So we use the same manager. We have uh, the, a maintenance crew that goes back and forth. And more importantly, or as important, those properties play off of each other because one is primarily one bedroom since the concrete jungle, there's really no green space. And across the street, you got a two and three bedroom, lots of, lots of acreage, etc. And we were able to pay market value for the 300 unit because we were packaging it in with the 250 unit that we were paying below market value. So the whole project, we were paying a little bit below market, but we're able to operate it at, an, at a level that no other buyer could operate the first property at because they weren't owning both. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's very, very so clever. So, so the takeaway for anyone listening is if you're in a hot market and you see a deal that you like, then also look across the street and see if you can package <laughs> those deals together and then go in with a competitive offer for both and use economies of scale with operations. But there was no advantage to the initial seller. Like the economies of scale didn't necessarily benefit them. They just benefit you because you were able to get that second deal and use the economies of scale to reduce your OPEX, right? I mean, you're not offering anything better to the seller, are you? What am I missing? To the seller of the 300 unit? Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we, were, we paid basically market price for that property. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they got the price they wanted and it worked for you because you got the economies of scale because you got both. Yeah. Exactly. Makes sense. It's clever. Makes sense. I like it a lot. Hey, Joe, really quick. Um, I, I, I want to jump back 
And then we'll, we'll come forward. So, sorry, I hate to do this, but uh, a question popped in my head here, which is you talked about investing 100K minimum on, on, on your deals. So um, l- let's, let's take this, this property. And I, I don't know if you're allowed to share it or not, but how are you making money? You're putting, you personally are putting 100K in. Presumably your investors are getting paid first. Let's say, let's say you put up, I don't know, 5% of, of the deal. What's your take? How do you, you know, you, you find the property, you're operating it, presumably. How do you actually get paid? Three primary ways. One is acquisition fee, 2% of the purchase price. Two is asset management fee, 2% of the collected income every month. And then three is we do, for most deals, we do 8% preferred return and 70-30 split thereafter. Vegas 70, 70 you yeah, they get yeah limited partners seventy, which I also am a limited partner because I'm investing alongside with them. Okay, but yeah. general partnership thirty percent. Uh, so to so we put in a hundred thousand, and if the raise is you know ten million, then uh, that one hundred doesn't equal thirty percent. Uh, so we're able to get that difference between what we put in and the thirty percent. Okay, so you get two percent of purchase, two percent of collected income, thirty percent of everything. Above that, and you're and after what? After the preferred return. After preferred return, and then the preferred return. What was the rate on that? Usually, it's been eight percent. So we'll just okay. say eight. Usually, it's eight. Cool. So in other awesome. words, for, so to take this into, if people are confused by that, let's say I'm a private investor and I want to invest with you, Joe, and I say, you know, okay, you know, here's a million dollars. I'm going to give you a million bucks. I get. Preferred return, correct me if I'm wrong, I get my 8% before you get your 70-30, but you get the 2% acquisition fee and the income for sure. Then we take the rest and make sure that I get my 8%. And if I don't get it, then you don't get your 70-30, right? That's that's good definition. Yeah, that's of- correct. The, the, yes, the only um, clarification point is, and this is a little bit different first than the industry standard, we don't collect asset management fees. So that 2% I mentioned earlier, unless we're paying the 8% preferred return. Okay. So we, we put that behind the investor preferred return. Very cool. Very cool. Just to have more alignment of interest. Yeah. And, and last question I got before maybe we move on to the fire round is like, what do you look for in terms of these deals for metrics? Like, are you, if anything, just a, you know, makes you a certain amount per month. Are you looking for a certain overall return for your investors and IRR or how do you, how do you look at that? Yeah. yeah uh, at least an 18% internal rate of return on a five year sale. So we have it for five years and then we sell it at year five. We want to, to our limited partners, to our investors, we want to have at least an 18% internal rate of return. That's fantastic. And so are, is there a deal where like, is there an amount that you want to personally make? Like, hey, I want a million bucks in profit on a deal. Do you have any kind of numbers like that or no? No, as long as uh, the investors have the 18% and the project does, is projected to do 22, 23%, then we're, we're all going to make money. Okay, yeah. Cool. And, sorry, last question. Are, are all these value-add opportunities, in other words, is every property you buy something that you can fix up and in, increase the rent, lower the expenses? Every single property, uh, what we buy, it's really straightforward. We buy 150 plus unit properties that are B class 
stabilized, so they're cash flowing, but have value add components and are 1980s or newer. Cool. I love that. I love that that you have that strict criteria. So somebody asks you, you know, hey, what's up? In fact, I had a guy recently, Jeff Woods from, uh, he does the One Thing podcast, right? He mentioned the other day this, uh, not to me, but to a friend of mine who that mentioned to me. Anyway, this idea, when somebody says, hey, you know, how you doing, man? When you respond with, uh, I'm doing great, you're giving up a massive opportunity. Instead, like, I'm mm-hmm. trying to change my mentality now. Someone says, hey, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm looking for a hundred unit mobile home park. Like, that's what I, like, right. Every conversation you're wasting. If all you say is I'm doing good, what are you doing? Anyway, this yeah, is that's a great. plug for Jeff Woods and the one thing podcast. But uh, anyway, nice. so I like that you have that criteria. Like, Hey, I'm looking for 150 unit plus class B 1980s stabilized property. You know anything? Hey, yep. Can you explain what stabilized is for people who don't know? Yeah, it's not 85 percent or above economic occupancy. And that's an important distinction. It's not just occupancy. There's a difference between physical occupancy and economic occupancy, physical people who are living there, economic people who are paying to live there. So at least 85% (laughs) economic occupancy. Big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Last question for me before we go to the fire round is this, I, I know you had talked about uh, pulling these two deals together. I don't know that we actually got the answer to the question on how are you finding the deals? So how did that initial deal actually come to you and the subsequent, the two deals that you're going to be closing on? How did you find those? So how are you actually finding these properties that you're evaluating? It's either on market deals that we're getting the email, just like everyone else who's listening is getting the email or off market deals. And I'd say, you know, we have eight apartment communities. Uh, so, and I'm going to include these other two that we're buying. So 10 total. And I'd say it's 50, eh, 60, 40, 60% off market deals. And I'll explain that in a second. And 40% on market deals that were, were publicized to the public. Um, so the off market deals, the 60% of our deals, they are found through a broker relationship. So we still pay the broker fee, but that broker only shares it with us first. And then because they know we'll close and the incentive. So the question might become, well, I understand why the broker would do it because they do less work. They don't have to create a long offer memorandum. They don't have to handle, you know, 40 different tours at the property. They don't have to field all these questions, but why would the owner agree to do an off-market deal instead of just promoting it publicly? And there's a couple reasons. One is that we're not stealing the deals by any means. We're not paying 20 cents on the dollar. We're paying a competitive price, but we're also paying on the off-market deals below market, but it's 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 very close. And um, the benefit to them is is that one, they're getting a close to market price, but then two, that they can go with a seller in a much shorter amount of time than they would if they had to um, go through the formal process, which can take a couple months and it's just less headache. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah. continually challenged by everything you're saying. Like, man, I need to do this differently. I need to do this differently. I need to do this differently. This is good. I love, I love conversations like this because I'm consistently, continually reminded of things that I can improve on and, and change my own business. So very, very cool. I mean, this has been awesome, but we're not quite done because next- Yeah, great stuff, Joe. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to shift gears here and head over to the world famous Fire Round. It's time for the Fire Round. <laughs> 
All right, the fire round. These are questions that come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums. And of course, you can get to the forums by heading over to biggerpockets.com slash forums, where I know guys like Joe are active and helping to answer questions, which is awesome. So uh, a few questions for you. First of all, this one starts a little bit, uh, you know, the beginning of your journey, but I, I'm looking at twenty to $30,000 Class C houses. Are they worth the headache for somebody just getting started? Uh, the, the answer is depends on your goals. I, I think a lot of times we we throw out questions and there's not enough context for people to answer them because if this indiv- and depends on who you are and what your skill set is if you have if you're really good with your hand with your hands and you're good at construction and you're local and you know the market then maybe yeah maybe it's a great way to get going but if you want to be more passive and your goals are something different then maybe not so not enough information Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Next question. I've been discussing potential investment opportunities in apartment syndications with my network. The toughest objection I'm coming across is what if I need to get my money out early? How do I overcome this or what's the answer to that? Well, the answer is that they're not liquid like stocks are. Uh, it's an illiquid investment for the most part. Uh, you have to keep your money in within a year, I believe. That's just what the SEC says. A securities attorney would be the best to answer that one. But then after that, it, when an investor asks or mentions that to me, I tell them that we'll do our best to accommodate and we have accommodated others, but it's it's treated as though it's an illiquid investment and I would approach that accordingly but you are investing with us and you know who we are as people. So, you know, we'll do what we can when we're able to do it to accommodate your request. Great. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Number three, what are the downsides to an apartment building with only one bedroom units, which is interesting. You just actually talked about that. So what are the downsides of that? Well, when someone uh, wants to have a, a, a two bedroom, you can't sell them on a one. But when someone wants a one bedroom, you can upgrade them to a two. And I've done this before. I've been at the leasing office and we've had a lot of two bedrooms available. All our ones were rented. And they said, hey, I'd like, or, or I, they, they wanted a one bedroom. Yeah. And they said, I want a one bedroom. I said, you know what? I have a one bedroom with a den. And they said, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's two bedroom, but I have a one bedroom with a den or I have a one bedroom with an office. And you can position the two bedrooms for the one bedroom people, but you can't do the opposite. And ultimately, it depends on your market and the yeah. economic drivers. Uh, if you're next to a camp, I mean, everyone knows it. if you're next to a campus, then you might be more, more inclined to have a one bedroom heavy apartment community, which by the way, my 90% one bedroom, 300 unit apartment community is walking distance to a college. Uh, so first I would look at what are the what's the supply and demand for ones and twos. And second, I would try to always have more twos than ones because you can be more flexible with the renter. Makes sense. Awesome. All right. Last question. How do I check to see if an investor group is real and not some slick organization trying to steal my money? I mean, like, oh, Ashcroft Capital. Yeah, great. How do I know they're not going to just run off with all my cash, right? How does somebody vet uh, somebody like you who's doing these things? I, I've had criminal background checks. I've had investors do criminal background checks. I've given them my social security number. 
And in addition to, and whatever other information I had to give them, in addition to that, it, it, you can, I mean, everyone, I would think most of us would know referrals, but the key to referrals is not to just go with the people who they give you as a reference. The key is to then talk to those references and ask those references who they know who invested in the deal and then talk to them. So do about two to three degrees of separation from who they originally give you as someone to talk to. And then you'll you'll start getting a better picture. I mean, ultimately it's it's you know, you've got to go based on the research that you do, but then you've got to go with um, just common sense and do do some common sense thing. Great, great, great advice. advice. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, before we get out of here, let's go and touch on our famous four. All right. These are the four questions we ask every guest every week. And we're gonna throw them at you right now, Joe, and see what you gotta say. So number one. Besides your own, what is your favorite real estate related book? Oh, it would be Crucial Conversations. And it is real real estate related because it talks about how to handle conversations when the stakes are high and opinions vary. All right. Cool. Never heard of that one. I think that, I think I actually have that on my nightstand upstairs. I think I just bought that one. Oh, nice. That's great. Nobody cares. Um, favorite <laughs> business book, Joe. I, I like the book Blink. You can make quick informed decisions in the blink of an eye. A lot of the times I think we get caught up in too much of the details when in reality, in reality, we probably have enough to take that first step and make a quick informed decision. Awesome. Awesome. All right, man, what do you do for fun outside of uh, real estate? Um, and by the way, I, I, we had the pleasure of meeting your, your wife when you guys were in town here and uh, your future wife and, and congrats again on your uh, pending nuptials. It really, and thank you. And it, it really is spending time with her. I mean, the beauty of what I do is, you know, I, I do it on, you know, for the most part, I create my own schedule. And so like last Monday, Colleen and I went on a bike ride at 4 PM. And so like, how cool is that to do that on a Monday compared to when I was in the advertising world and yeah, I, I was working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. So I in like as soon as I get done having a conversation with you two, I'm going to Columbus and I'm going to see Texas Tech play Ohio State and college baseball. So, you know, doing cool stuff like that. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Very cool. All right. Final question of the day. What do you believe sets apart successful investors from those who give up, fail, or just never get started? I, I, I'd say consistency, identifying what is effective and then just doing it over and over and over again. We live in an instant gratification society. Everyone wants fast results, quick results. The reality is real estate, you play the long game. I mean, I, I've, I've done a daily podcast seven days a week for over 1,000 days. Which is crazy. And no one else. No one else in the world has done that. And the amount that that has helped my business and my relationships and just learning and just growing as a real estate investor has been tremendous. And so just doing something consistently that you know is effective and building upon that, you're going to get big results. Yeah. By the yeah. way, how, cool. do you, how do you do that? I mean, do you do like seven shows in a day or you do one each day? When you record, I, I, I now have, uh, I do 10 interviews one day a week wow. of, and so I do 40 interviews a month. And then the other days of the week, Friday, I don't have anything scheduled. So it's either Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. Um, I block off one day 
And then the other three days I have like, you know, investor conversations, client calls, stuff like that. Nice. Crazy. Right on. That's awesome. Right on. All right, Joe, since you, you brought it up, you got the podcast. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can go to investwithjoe.com if you're interested in passive stuff, or you can go to multifamilysyndication.com. I've got all sorts of free real estate tools and are on multifamily syndication videos, articles, stuff like that. Awesome. Very cool. Awesome. What's your podcast called? Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever. You've had some really good guests on there, including... It, including guy. you. Yes, Brandon. <laughs> yes. Wow. Including the legend. That's amazing. Including the legend. You yeah. are incorrigible, dude. Uh, it's crazy. Well, I want people to go listen. You know, they're good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll link in the show notes. All right, Joe. Thanks so much for coming on, man. We really do appreciate it. Hey, enjoyed it. Thank you, too. Good catching up. Yeah, you too. See you later. All right, guys. That was Joe Fairless. Big thanks again to Joe uh, are you, are you still convicted? Convinced? I, convinced? I, I'm convicted. Okay. So here's, here's the one thing that like, there's a lot of things that stood out to me, but here's one thing that I, I do a bad job of and I do better. So no, there's it, more than one, but there's a lot. Okay. <laughs> so, and I'm going to, I'm going to say you probably do a bad job of this as well. And so, you know, in, in our position and, and the fact that we network a lot, we have, we go to meetups where I mean, we have this podcast, we meet a lot of investors. You and I both do, right? Like I don't have a single list of people that have told me, Hey, I would love to invest with you someday. Or, Hey, we should do some deals together. I don't keep track of that very well. I mean, I kind of have like a, I I started for a while. Anyway, what what Joe was, he's very intentional about, about that kind of thing. And that's what I'm, I'm very much like, this is going to change in my life. I'm going to start being more intentional. When people tell me that they want to invest with me someday, I'm going to take that serious, more seriously and say, okay, let's get your information. What do you want to know? What do you want to do? You know, what's your goals? And maybe down the road, it might be five, 10 years from now. It could be next year. At least then I have that organization that I can go back to those people and raise money for deals. I think that's great. I I would agree. I also am quite bad at that. So yeah. very, very good advice. And yeah, great show. Great show. Well, listen, man, um, nice, nice to chat with you as always. And, you know, I, I do appreciate all, all the commentary on the new, the new me. Um, yeah, you know, it's very, the, the bearded, the bearded midget. I don't know. Is that the wrong word to wow. use? <laughs> really? You just insulted bad. a lot of people. So you may want to take that back. How, how does that insult people? Because they don't want to look like you. I don't know. You are a very small man. You know, you're like four, <laughs> four foot, four foot nine. I mean, aren't you four foot nine, four foot eight. You're, you're something like that. <laughs> <laughs> what's, oh, what's funny man. is people people always tell me when they meet me in person wow you're way taller than than i thought you're way taller than you sound right i hear that all the time do people tell you all the time wow you're way shorter than you sound <laughs> no because they always think i'm the tall guy because obviously i have more of a command of everything and, oh, and better looking be. and mm, obviously know. uh you know better <laughs> at at pretty much anything so except <laughs> BSing and, and, you know, living, you know, brain, uh, brain inflation. I don't know. <laughs> well, what's funny is like, okay, so Josh is not actually like four, eight, but I, I say that all the time. Cause I want people to, when they see him be like, wait, you're not actually that short. Like you're a very average, normal, like handsome. Height, right. I but am, you know, yes, I want people yes. to think you're like four foot five or something. Right. And, and you are actually like seven foot three. So I'm actually seven three. Yeah. I played yes. in the NBA for a month. It was great. It, yeah. Not, not good at all. <laughs> Um, yeah, man. Well, listen, good show. Good, good chat. Of course you guys, if you like the show, 
definitely please well, yeah, leave us a rating, leave us a review, jump on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. Uh, subscribe, hit the subscribe button. Please spread the word. Tell your friends, your family, uh, your colleagues about the Bigger Pockets podcast. Tell them about the site. If you haven't already done so, please jump on Bigger Pockets, create a profile, create an account today, get active, start meeting guys like Joe, like Brandon, you name it. Get out there, make things happen, and lots of luck to you. With that, I'm Josh Dorkin, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. It's time for it's time for it's time for the Random Five. All right, let's get to today's random five. These five random questions we like to ask guests each week and kind of hide in the show at some point. So number one, uh, Joe, what do you look for in a friend? <laughs> Not I, you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Well, me and Joe are BFFs. Come on. I, I'd say authenticity. Just, just being true to who you are, and that's most important. Oh, nice. Good. Uh, all right. Next question. Should there be an age limit for trick or treating? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No. I mean, but if you're young, you should go with your parents. Oh, okay. All right. So uh, you don't think it's weird if like, you know, 30 year old, a 30 year old oh, shows going, up at your door <laughs> and like a ghost outfit or like a <laughs> Hello Kitty suit that Brandon has locked in his closet? Yeah, good, uh, I, I think I think that would be great for social media fodder. So no, no age limit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Uh, what is your favorite quote? Do you have a favorite quote? Yeah. Secret to living is giving. Tony Robbins says it on his uh, TED talk uh, where he gives Al Gore a high five. And that's uh, everything I do. I have a give back component to it. Very cool. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Who are three people aside from Josh you consider to be geniuses? <laughs> Um, did I'd you just say, talk about yourself gotta, in third I, person? Did I, you just? I, I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta build upon this thing Brandon's got going on. So I'm, I'm gonna try. <laughs> I don't really like how it feels, but, but I'm I feel like it. I feel like our Skype screens. Your heads are both getting larger, and mine's like just shrinking. <laughs> I'm gonna be eventually off the screen by the end of this call. <laughs> um, three people. I, I mean, what geniuses? I'd say. Uh, Tony Robbins would be one. I think he he has a special gift. He's able to package things in very easily understood and makes them very easily understood. That's one. yeah. Number two would be, um, I think Malcolm Gladwell is incredibly insightful. Again, he's good at uncovering stuff that we miss as a society. And making making into a you know practical information that we can use. So I, I'd say he's number two, and I, I'm a huge Tim Ferriss fan. I don't know if I consider him a genius, but again, he is uh, he's able to help shortcut a lot of things that could take a longer period of time if we yeah. didn't listen to him. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's awesome. All right, last question from me. By the way, all three of those guys, I, I totally agree. Uh, what is your favorite dark chocolate, milk chocolate, or white chocolate? Dark for sure, because nice. I'm a huge, huge chocoholic. And if I did milk or white chocolate, then I'd be way overweight. So I'll, I'll just go to go with dark. 
Nice. All right. Good, with good sea call. salt. With sea salt, please. Oh, <laughs> fancy. All right. And that was our random five. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.